This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we'll talk to Caitlin Cross from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. She's the resident mammologist and has recently taken a particular interest in the skunks of Mississippi. Also, we'll talk about several mammal sightings around the state, like bats and other creatures. As always, Dr. Major's ready for pet questions. Libby's ready to help with other wildlife experiences and observations. So join our conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. If you ever miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, uh, Libby. Well, let's uh, start out with you. Uh, uh, you're back on the road again. Tell us uh, what you've been seeing on this most recent trip. Oh, okay. I Well, I'm in, I am in Oregon now and uh, seeing our general birds out here, so uh, the bigger chickadees that we've got on the West Coast and a lot of juncos. But um, my grandson and I, he's six now, we've been um, preparing to go look for the rough-skinned newts. I think we've talked about them maybe a couple years ago online. They have a, a got a lot of um, salamanders out here in this rainy place. You know, that's the kind of weather salamanders like. So uh, it's probably too early yet but he's we're reading about them and getting excited and walking in the woods where we know they are to look for rough skinned newts as they um it's got to be rainy and uh there needs to be some surface moisture on the ground so these little newts will cross the trails and the roads um as they come out of hibernation but it's 26 degrees right now, so I don't think any newts are going to be moving around out here. And those of you in Mississippi, I'm missing my butterflies, and I hope that you'll start um, watching for butterflies and maybe make a list. I know just before I left the house, uh, those morning walks, we were seeing um, orange tip sulfurs and cloudless sulfurs and oh, all kinds of things are coming out. Uh, all the small, neat little butterflies that uh, feed on the early spring flowers that are blooming. So uh, get outside and start looking for those. And I wanted to mention the Jaro spiders. Strictly, this is certainly not the time of year to look for them if we've got them, but I know that some people have been hearing about the Jaro spiders. They're a very large spider compared to, you know, about an inch of body length, which is, a you know, a good-sized spider. But... Um, I feel like the media has really sensationalized them and exaggerated um, their possible threats. I don't know. It's just a lot of crazy things on the media. If you've not seen it, you may see it soon. But um, they're absolutely nothing to fear. They are um, a spider that's been introduced from Japan, and they've been in Georgia and South Carolina for probably the last seven or eight years and they do seem to be able to overwinter so there is certainly a chance that they will 
spread around the southeast. And now they are probably a threat to our orb weaver spiders, but not a threat to people or pets or any other animals, and certainly no cause for panic. They're, remember we've talked about the golden silk orb weavers that have the yellow silk, and they're a pretty good-sized spider, primarily black and yellow. In a similar color pattern, although you can learn pretty easy to distinguish them from our yellow garden spiders that we've, you know, we've watched all our lives. Well, the last few years, we've had these golden orb weavers that have migrated up from um, southern Florida and southern Texas, those areas. But this is one that's related to them, but it, it, it's, you know, been in Japan. So it's now here. It's... Uh, the, it really, oh, there's talk that they can bite you, and they, they have just enough poison to kill whatever insect they're preying on. So that's certainly not enough poison to do any damage to a person or even, you know, a small mammal or anything. So don't fear the Joro spiders, and uh, we won't see them probably until late summer if they are here because they overwinter as an, an, an egg and then, you know, hatch out and there'll be those little babies. One of the things they've talked about is spiders parachuting. It's something unusual, but um, many of our spider species, the little spiderlings, which are teeny tiny, do parachute through the air. You would probably not notice it if one landed on you even, but, uh, you know, it's in the woods, hopefully, and no problem, but we've had that as long as we've been around, so no need to worry about the Jaro spider, but if you see them, call Creature Comforts, and I, we'll talk about it again in late summer. All right. Uh, we've got an email question for Dr. Major, but first, it uh, looks like Kathy is on the line from Peelahatchee, wants to talk about uh, baby bluebirds. Good morning, Kathy. Go ahead. You're on the air with us. Yeah, go ahead. Um, we have we have bluebird boxes. I live um, out in the country in my around farmland. Um, we never had a problem. Um, last year, um, we the, the mom hatched the babies, and they were all in their nest. And we went out to check um, uh, maybe a week or so later, and they were they were all dead in the nest. Every single one of them. So I don't know if maybe the farmers, uh, when he when he sprayed, maybe this time it's the the whatever he sprays with got a little too close to the nest. It's never happened before. Now, all right, was it during that really cold weather? If you have a cold snap at night, I found I did find dead bluebirds in my boxes, but it was before the babies were born, and those were from the cold. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't during the cold time, um, and they were all perfectly, perfectly formed. And even they, they, had, you know, started getting their little feathers. It was the saddest thing ever. Um, oh yeah, that's so distressing. Yeah, um, they're such cute little babies. I'm so sorry that yeah. you lost them. Um, I would keep a watch out on anything that's changed in the environment, uh, since they eat insects. It shouldn't have been tainted seed or any of that, um, but you might watch what insects are eating, yes, and hopefully it's not a a recurring thing. Hopefully that's a one-time problem. 
Well, I have boxes all along the, the back of the fence, but this particular one is the only one that was affected. So I just I didn't know if maybe the wind was blowing when he sprayed the ground or the crop. I mean, he's you know, it's it, he he farms it every year and it's never affected him. But maybe maybe something I just never had them all be affected like that. Yeah, let's yeah just have to hope it was a one-time event. Um, you know, most of the chemicals, as, as long as he's following the rules with the spraying, most of what they're allowed to spray, it's not going to be too detrimental. But, you know, you never know if a, a big whiff gets something. Yeah, oh, I know you'll be nervous now, but watch your bluebirds this time, and hopefully we're going to have a good season. Okay, well, thanks for your comments. I appreciate it. Okay, I have, I have seen... Um, bluebirds at our house so just in the last few days so hopefully um we'll have them again nesting all right uh, kathy thanks for your call good to hear from you we've got some open phone lines by the way would you like to uh, make a, a call in and a comment or question it's one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four before our first break, we'll invite Dr. Major into the conversation. An interesting email here for you, Dr. Major. It says, is it good for the happiness and, psycholo- and psychological well-being of one's pets if two or more pets, dogs or cats, live together in the home, especially if the owner's absent from the house for part of the day? They can enjoy each other's company. And if so, should they be neutered if they're different sexes? So uh, any thoughts on that email? Very good questions. I, I would say, first of all, that yes, they should be uh, following the directions of your vet, but they should be neutered or spayed. I think it would make for a better situation in the house. But I, in my opinion, yes, they need company. And uh, a, a cat or a dog that's left all day long at the house, like yours, Kevin, uh, might have some issues. Uh, but make sure that they've got plenty of things to do. Uh, and uh, I would say in answer to the question, yes, it is good to have uh, more than one pet uh, for company, if nothing else. Um, when it comes to mixing dogs and cats, I know traditionally we think, you know, though they're enemies, they chase each other, don't like each other. But, I mean, especially if you were to get them young enough, I've seen examples where dogs and cats get along fine. In general, they do. There's always a little thing of the, the dog-cat uh, differences but in general, they get along fine. Uh, my little Chihuahua does not want the cats on the bed, so that's that's an issue there. But other than that, they do get along fine. When they're on the floor, uh, it's, it's, it's okay. So it, it depends on the animal, certainly. And I've seen some, some cats that can't tolerate dogs, especially if you bring an older dog in or an older cat. It takes some adjustment for them to learn how to get along. And I'll say that uh, I, I do try to engage my cat while I am home, you know, to ch- let him chase the ball and, and that sort of thing. As I've mentioned a couple of times, I bought two of those little tunnels that he likes to run through. So I would say if you do only right. have one pet at home and you're out during the day, make sure that you, you know, you engage with your pet when you get home and play with them. I think it's not only good for their mental health, but certainly good for ours as well. Right. You're absolutely right. The other thing, there are some good TV channels, and some of these pets watch tv uh and and can associate with it so in other words with the cat certainly a, a channel that has plenty of birds on it would be interesting to the cat 
That's for sure, because that's the other thing. My cat loves to sit in the window, I think, and, and, and watch uh, what's going on outside. Although I, it seems odd that it's, it always seems like it's very nasty, cold, rainy weather when he's at the front door trying to, to get out. And I keep telling him, it's like, you do not want to go out there. You're one of the lucky cats. You get to stay inside the whole time. So Absolutely. That's great. Time for the first break of the hour. When we get back, we'll welcome our guest, Caitlin Cross, mammalogist at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today we're going to be talking about skunks, bats, and mammals of all kinds, so stay tuned. You can call with questions and comments. Our phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest today is Caitlin Cross from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. You can join the conversation with a phone call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. Reach us at 1-877-672-7464 or email animals at mpbonline.org. We've got some phone calls to get to, but we do want to talk with our guest a little bit this morning. Um, so, um, Caitlin, thanks for joining us uh, on this morning. Um, tell us a little bit about your um, your background before we begin. Have you always been interested in, in biology and the great outdoors? Yes, I originally wanted to be a veterinarian, and in high school I volunteered at a vet and eventually got a pulled there. And we had wildlife that would come in, and I got more interested in wildlife, and I always played outside, you know, caught anything I could. And so when I went to college, I went to Mississippi State. I was in uh, the wildlife department, and I kind of swapped majors from being a veterinarian to doing wildlife biology. I toyed with doing fish, and I started volunteering with the Natural Science Museum, and I got more interested in mammals. And I worked with my predecessor, uh, Kathy Shelton, then volunteering with her and doing bats, and I just I fell in love. <laughs> Uh, so we mentioned that you're the memologist at the museum. Uh, tell us what, what sort of things you do during a typical day. I do not have a typical day. <laughs> <laughs> um, rarely am I in the office, but when I'm in the office, I'm usually prepping specimens for a memology collection. Uh, so, you know, skinning animals, doing the dirty work. And I do a lot of field work. So I work with bats mostly. So it's uh, surveying hibernaculas in the wintertime. Uh, during the summer months, I'm mist netting. Sometimes I use a harp net or do acoustics. I'm also surveying maternity roosts. Uh, I've started doing spotted skunk stuff. Um, that usually falls in the colder weather when they're more active. Uh, right now, I'm just doing camera surveys. Uh, eventually, I'll start doing trapping. And I've also been doing, well, we'll be starting to do rodent surveys. So next week I will be surveying for old field mice. Uh, we have a small disjunct population on our uh, eastern, southern eastern border. So I'm going to go check up on those. Um, 
you mentioned some of the the uh, exhibits, mammal exhibits at the museum. Do you maybe a couple that, that maybe might be your favorites? <laughs> Probably the one where I prepped all the bat specimens. <laughs> uh, yeah, a few years ago, we went downstairs, and the specimens there, they deteriorate over time with UV and whatnot. And I was just looking at them, and there were just maybe three different species, and we have 15 species of bat that can occur here. So I took it upon myself, and I talked to our exhibits, and I was like, can I please update this? <laughs> So now I believe I have at least six species on display. All right. Uh, and you mentioned the field work, and we've t- with the other people we've talked with on the show, it seems like a lot of it is involved with, you know, tracking populations of whatever animal you're studying. Why is it important that we know where things are and, and where things aren't, maybe? It is important to get baseline data in case something happens and that uh, population declines. And it's also important to note uh, with historical data, is that species still there? Because our habitat's going to change over time it, just with how natural things go and how you know people move into areas. There's always new development, and that could affect populations. And then also we can have diseases where things can die off. And that's kind of what happened with the spotted skunks. So. Uh, we'll get into spotted skunks in just a minute, but we, as I mentioned, do have a couple of phone calls to get to. So let's begin in Liberty. Eric has called in this morning. Go ahead, Eric. You're on the air with us. Thank you, sir. Uh, about a week ago, a friend of mine had some people come out and rope a uh, bring us bull. And this bull is about four years old and approximately 2,000 pounds. So these people train, end up they tranquilize this bull, and for 45 minutes, you know, it really didn't do anything. And so when they finally roped this bull, uh, he ran probably maybe 25 yards or something, and they threw some ropes on him and stuff like that, and this bull uh, collapsed. And they say he, the people that was out there to catch him say he had a heart attack or he died. And my question is, is that could they have possibly given him the wrong dosage because he was relatively, I mean, a healthy bull? Dr. Major, any thoughts? Eric, it's a good question. Here's the, here's the thing. First of all, I don't know what they used to tranquilize the bull. I suppose they used it. A gun dart, probably, and possibly use something called xylazine. Often, uh, that small, fairly small dosage can incapacitate a bull or a large cow. But uh, you have to be careful with it, and it sounds like the, uh, the bull could have had a heart attack. I don't know actually say that, but something happened to him because of the sedation and I don't know how aggravated or how upset he was before they gave him the shot so that could all enter in but uh, dosage is important uh, when you're tranquilizing a large animal for several reasons number one if they stay down very long they can bloat they can't regurgitate and they can have issues there but there are other things can happen so I don't know the drug they use or the dosage, so that would be hard for me to tell you. All right, Eric. We- 
We appreciate your call, Eric. This is uh, Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Just a, a note, we appreciate Dr. Major. He actually phones in from the clinic, and sometimes uh, some of his patients, they're a little louder than others, but it's always, to me, kind of a chuckle when we hear the dogs in the background. Dr. Major, sounds like you're off to a busy day this morning. Uh, there's somebody this uh, morning to go home, I think. And just <laughs> was having a, an episode right as we started, so he, he, he chimes in every once in a while but uh it's part of part of the vet clinic okay never a dull moment that's for sure uh let's stay on the phone lines next we'll go to raymond richard has called in today good morning richard good morning so i had a question for you today a few years back my wife and i received a small rabbit from a friend and at the time, we thought we were adopting somebody's former pet rabbit because it was just a couple months old. As it grew up, we began to think more and more that we may actually have adopted a wild cottontail that somebody had. He's very flighty, doesn't like to be messed with. But lately, he's started to develop cataracts, and he's starting to have a lot more urine than he's had in the past, and he's about seven years old. And I was curious if Dr. Major could tell me anything I could do for him because I really don't want to take him into a vet because he really doesn't like trying to travel or be touched by anybody. I understand. I understand the question as well. I guess the question, and Libby could help me on this, uh, as far as I'm concerned or know, the average lifespan of a wild rabbit probably goes somewhere between five and eight years. And that probably depends on where they are and what kind of predators are in the area. So this may be a natural occurrence of the uh, uh, age. At the same time, you have to consider diabetes. Rabbit can develop diabetes. Uh, you give the rabbit a varied diet, in other words, different, different things, or any one in particular. Richard, what do you... Um, the rabbit... The rabbit has, normally we buy salads and stuff like that, lettuce, spinach, mixed greens, and then he has Timothy hay as well as normal rabbit pellet food. Okay, sounds like you've, uh, you know, given him a, a good good diet. As far as, as far as being able to diagnose anything, it's very hard because the fact that he said he is uh, very hard to handle and like to be handled, I'm sure. Uh, but my first choice would be uh, possible diabetes. You said he was urinating more, and uh, certainly that could be what's going on. Hard to diagnose without seeing that. Okay. Uh, Dr. Major, would uh, any resources at Mississippi State University maybe help someone who has a pet that they think might be a wild animal that, and is a little bit difficult uh, interacting with, you know, as, as Richard said, taking him to the, the vet might be a problem? You know, it certainly could, and I, I would certainly possibly contact them. But, uh, you know, the oldest rabbit that I've ever dealt with uh, was probably and it was a, a wild rabbit. Uh, after that, they wouldn't live much longer. But it sounds like you're giving them some back diet, and certainly diabetes can happen. Uh, 
All right. Uh, let's, uh, we've got another phone call on the line. We'll go to Ocean Springs and Caroline's called in today. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Good morning. I have a comment. I heard a mention of the gold and the little spider. Yes. And I have seen them in my yard. A few years ago, I had saw my first one ever, and it was very interesting. Um, they're big. They're like three inches across and have gigantic webs. Um, but every year I have more. This year it's like something out of a horror movie because in one corner of the back of my yard, there were like a dozen of these giant spiders and giant webs that can be 10 or 15 or more feet across, just taking up the whole corner of the yard under the trees. And I'm not happy with that. I'm, one is fine, but when they're all around the yard in different places and multiple ones that just you don't want to walk close to, I wipe them down with a cane pole and step on them, but that's gross. So they're not nice. I don't know what to do about them. I know I can't really do anything about them. So that's just a comment. All right, uh, Carolyn, thanks. Uh, Libby, any, any thoughts? Where she lived, it was cut. The phone was cutting in and out for me, but uh, immediately started thinking about what are they eating. Obviously, there's a big food supply for them, so she probably needs to think about that. What what insects are they eating in those webs? They're catching something in the web. So, what are they eating that um, has increased their population to such an extent? They're not protected animals, so. Um, you know, if she feels that she really wants to do something with, you know, with them, she certainly can. Uh, but I would say that whatever they are feeding on will then be there probably in large numbers. So she needs to think about that, too. But uh-huh. she can certainly move them from areas where she just feels like she can't tolerate them. And I would say do some reading about them and um, decide if it's, you know, Decide how much you want to live with them. I've never heard of anybody having that many. I really haven't. So that makes me real curious as to, sounds like she's got the perfect habitat for them. <laughs> it might be interesting for her to record what uh, what's going on around uh, the areas where they're the most densely populated, just to kind of figure out what it is. Yes. All right, uh, we're going to take another break. When we get back, we'll talk with our guest, Caitlin Cross, mammalogist at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, talk about spotted skunks. Dr. Major is still ready to take your pet questions, and Libby's listening on her phone as well. So uh, call us with questions and comments. The number is one mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. 
You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest this morning is Caitlin Cross, mammologist at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. To join our conversation, give us a phone call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Caitlin, uh, you work with spotted skunks. So, if you would, first of all, tell us, you know, what, how big are they? What, what do they look like? Just kind of a general overview of the spotted skunk. Spotted skunks are our smallest skunk. They're actually squirrel size, maybe about a pound. Um, unlike striped skunks, spotted skunks have lines that are broken across their backs that look like spots. And they have a little triangle on their head. And uh, also, unlike striped skunks... A spotted skunk will do a handstand in defense. So they'll get on their front paws, and uh, their tail will be erect, as, uh, and they can actually walk a little bit in that pose, and they can even spray in that pose. Um, they also stamp their feet, just like a striped skunk in defense. Um, they can climb trees, which is something that stripes can't do. So if you... Um, ever talked to somebody about skunks when they were growing up in the country and they heard about a skunk uh, climbing a tree that was most likely spotted. Um, yeah. So um, what does a, 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 the spotted skunks eat? What, is, what does their diet consist of? Uh, grubs and bugs. <laughs> <laughs> they primarily eat um, insects, uh, but they will eat small mammals, sometimes birds. They do like eggs. In fact, when they eat an egg, they'll grab it in their front feet and try to bite it. And if that doesn't work, they'll actually push it to their hind legs and kick it to try to break the egg open. Um, and they'll actually carry on, too. So any time you have a deer carcass out there, uh, they love they love eating it. What about um, their social structure? Do they live in groups or do they tend to be uh, solo? They tend to be solitary, but they have been known to have multiples in a, one den site. Um, and then I guess most of us, when we think about a skunk, think about spraying. Is is that their primary mode of defense? Yes. And uh, they tend to be more noxious than our uh, striped skunks. Aha. Uh-huh. That's interesting. Uh, um, but um, the other thing that, that where they go up on their, you said they go up on their front paws. So it's almost like they're. That's, I don't know. I, I mean, I can just imagine a little animal kind of turning around and sticking its tail up and squirting you. That that seems rather rude, I guess. But <laughs> but also, I mean, do they? It, it makes them appear taller, maybe, when they stand up like that. Yes, and it's more. Um, you know, you, you see those bold white against black. It's uh, very. Uh, I don't know what the perfect word for that. It's very. That, that's something that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. You see that, and. You know, they don't want to spray. They want to deter you as much as possible. That's why they do the handstand. That's why they stamp their feet. And they may even, like, rush uh, you. But uh, if it comes down to, if you can't, don't leave them alone, they will spray. It's almost like, hey, I gave you a chance to stop bothering me, but now I'm going to the secret weapon. Yes. <laughs> um, how rare are spotted skunks? Extremely, extremely rare, especially in Mississippi. Uh, outside of trapping records, since 2000, we have had six confirmed records. Extremely rare. Uh, we've uh, been, you know, I've been doing my surveys and I've been putting out the Have You Seen Me flyers, try to get as much people 
to look for them or report sightings and have had some, you know, in areas, but they don't have a photo. And since people can easily mistake them for striped skunks, it's hard to confirm that. Um, The ones that we found, the few ones that we found, do they tend to be in one part of Mississippi versus another? Well, we've had two from Cane Mount WMA, WMA, which is in Claiborne County. Um, And then other ones have been kind of sporadic, more towards central Mississippi, but not not enough where I can say, hey, there's definitely a population here, but not here. And you mentioned uh, putting up the wanted posters or whatever. How can listeners uh, help you uh, look for these skunks? Well, if they see them, even as a roadkill, you can take a photo. Uh, We have a cooperative study group throughout the range of spotted skunks that have, if you've never used iNaturalist, it's a great platform. Uh, You can post it on there with location, and we'll verify it and get it to the state uh, representative. And then also, if you have trail cameras out and you see one, please report it. So maybe from a distance, what would be maybe an identifying feature on the, uh, the spotted skunk that you would think, hey, wait, that might be one of those. Let me try to get a closer look or something. Uh, they tend to have the more prominent white tip tails, even though stripes have that too. But honestly, they're just they're much smaller. So some people might think that they're baby striped skunks and then having those broken stripes that look like spots. This is Creature Comforts. We're visiting today with our guest, Caitlin Cross, mammalogist at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. <clears throat> Caitlin's also going to help us talk about. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Hush. Choke me up there. Uh, we're going to talk about bats in just a few minutes, but we do have a caller on the line, so we'll say good morning to David, who's called in from uh, Clark County. Good morning, David. You're on the air with us. Okay. Hey, uh, I was wondering about these bluebirds. I get a. I get two litters of bluebirds in my box every year, and I want to know if it's the same bluebirds, and should I clean the nest out after the first one or just leave it in there all year? And um, two years in a row, I've had a bucket full of bluebirds. They come tumbling out of the box, and I got a Jack Russell, so they can't run around on the ground. So I just put them in a bucket and put them under the box, and they fed them for two or three days. I took them in the house at night. And it took like two, two and a half days for all six of them to fly out. I thought that was pretty neat. But uh, what, what's the bluebird got against the uh, yellow-bellied woodpecker? He hates that rascal. He'll chase him everywhere. Okay, thank you. All right, uh, David, thanks for the call. Libby, any thoughts on what David had to say? Oh, that's a great call, David. I'm so glad he's taking care of his bluebirds. And, um, yes, we think often bluebirds return to Wednesday we're born so uh, it, we have them year round in Mississippi but they're not as obvious when they, they molt, molt you know this time of year just finished it probably and they're looking really beautiful and blue so they're much more noticeable right now and they're looking for nest sites and um, evidently David's got some good ones so those are probably birds that have been there either nested before or hatched there as babies and uh, I would say do clean out the nest. Uh, sometimes, though, a, a bluebird pair will nest again, and especially if they've lost, you know, if something's happened to the, the eggs of the babies, they'll re-nest. But uh, it's not uncommon at all for birds to re-nest. So I, and then you want to just leave the nest for them. So what I would say is clean it out at the end of the season, 
And if you have no bluebirds right now and your nests are dirty, you may want to clean all that out. Be sure that, that there's not mites and, you know, anything in there that might bother them. And then they'll build their own nest this season. I leave the nest, whatever gets built that season, I continue to leave it on through the season. I know some people clean out each time, but I, I leave them because I do know that my same pairs re-nest. Okay. Um, now, go ahead, Libby. You might want to start keeping records. That's sometimes useful for researchers. Is uh, If he's watching his nest closely, how many nests he has each year, and how, how successful those nests are, you know, how many babies get hatched. That that might be something that would be fun for David to do, and it's it's useful information. All right, <clears throat> Caitlin, when we uh, we'll switch and, and uh, talk a little bit about bats, and I think earlier in the show you told us how many different types of bats do you find in Mississippi. There can be uh, around fifteen species. Uh, eight of them are more common than others. And again, when ta- we talk about distribution through the state, can people all through Mississippi find bats in their area? Absolutely. <laughs> It's a bad thing if you don't find bats. <laughs> and I think you and Java were talking during one of the breaks. And I, I, Java, I think you asked just as a question about bats in the Jackson area. Yeah, I just was curious because, you know, I've found a bat around my house, uh, you know, a couple years back. And I know it's not uncommon for people to find bats in their attic. So I just asked Kaylin the question, is the number of bats just in the Jackson metro area in the in the thousands or is it the tens of thousands or is it in like the hundreds of thousands? And what did you say, Caitlin? It's probably in the hundreds of thousands. Wow. That's a lot of bats. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did have a question last week about a bat uh, seen by a listener on a brick wall around her home. She wanted to know how to deal with it and if she should try to move it. What advice would you give to her? So sometimes, especially this time of year where their bats are migrating, we'll see them um, occasionally wrestle on the side of a wall. And it's usually our tricolor bat. They're our smallest bat. Most of the time, I say leave it alone unless it is hanging low to the ground. And I want to say low, this is where a person can grab it. Because in that instance, it's probably endangered. Uh, Somebody's coming, you know, somebody could grab it or it's hurt. Because it would preferably go as high as it could possibly can. And in that instance, uh, you never touch a bat barehanded. And you first need to talk to a rehabber. And you can contact me to get a, whoever rehabber is in your area. We only have a few in the state that actually handle bats. And at that time, they'll tell you how to wrap it up, how to uh, put it in a box so they can come get it. Don't ever put it in a coffee can without any uh, air holes. I've had that happen before. And they don't last long like that. So when we talk about, again, the bats that are <clears throat> more familiar here in Mississippi, what, what size are we talking about? Uh, so our smallest bat is a tricolor bat, and I refer to it as a flying chicken nugget. It's the same <laughs> color and size as a McDonald's chicken nugget. And it's, yeah. And they get a little bit bigger. Our, probably our, more, our most common of the larger bats is the big brown bat, and they have a wingspan of a foot. Okay. Um, do bats have rabies? Less than 1% of bats have rabies. It's, uh, but in Mississippi, that is our most common uh, rabies vector. So again, stress, never handle a bat with your bare hands. I have my pre-exposure shots. 
All our rehabbers that handle bats have their pre-exposure shots. There is no cure for rabies, so it's all about preventative measures. Do we know how that whole kind of urban myth ever got started of why? I mean, because I guess maybe they can, and so people associate rabies with bats? I mean, I mean they are one of our top vectors, uh, but we've done a good job in the United States of controlling rabies outbreaks. We're going to take another break, uh, but when we get back, well, let's talk a little bit about bat conservation here in Mississippi. Uh, we are talking this hour with memologist Caitlin Cross. If you want to join the conversation with a question or comment, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. Send an email to animals at org. Back to wrap up things after this break. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for the hour is Caitlin Cross from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Still time to work in a question or comment if you give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. And we always like to remind you, if you ever see something when you're out and about in Mississippi that you don't know what it is, if it's a creature, if you can snap a picture of it with your smartphone, we've got some resources to where if you'll send it to us, we can help you figure out what it is. And that's the best way is to email it to us at animals at mpbonline.org. So, Caitlin, tell us about uh, bat conservation efforts in Mississippi. So I primarily work with white nose syndrome, studying white nose syndrome in the state. And for those that don't know, because it's not very well known, uh, it's a fungus that probably originated from Europe and somehow ended up in the United States in New York and has spread like wildfire and has just devastated hibernaculas. Has, some sites have completely wiped out with bats. There used to be hundreds of thousands, and they're all gone. And in Mississippi, we first detected the fungus eight years ago. And I can actually say this now. Uh, we have our first confirmed record of white nose syndrome in the state. So we will most likely in the coming years see the devastating effect and colony collapses from this fungus. Are there ways or working on ways to, to combat the, the fungus? Yes. Uh, there's multitude of resources, uh, but there's not one that's broadly used. Some folks have researched using fungicides, but you had to be careful with using that and make sure you're not wiping out any uh, naturally occurring flora that uh, could actually be beneficial. Some have used vaccinations, which imagine going to all the different bats and vaccinating them. Uh, some have altered the habitat, but again, that's very site-specific, and you have to be careful with that as well. Yeah, vaccinating a, a chicken nugget, that, would be, <laughs> that wouldn't be easy to do. <clears throat> well, what about bat boxes? So uh, you can use bat boxes if you want to uh, kind of help save bats, but make sure you're putting something up that is built correctly. 
And the best resources for that is Bat Conservation International. They have a whole webpage about it. They've done the research for decades. And bat boxes need to be long. They need to be at least 24 inches long and at least a foot wide. And uh, they used to recommend single chamber boxes, but um, studies have shown that it doesn't protect them as so much from the elements anymore. So you need uh, wider boxes with multiple chambers that the bats can move from, say, more the exterior portion to more interior, depending on temperatures. And they need to be put high, at least 12 feet high. Uh, and also, I think you mentioned that, you know, I've seen uh, some bat boxes, I think, out on the trails behind the museum and in some of the other sort of more natural areas. But you were saying that maybe in a backyard might not be the best thing to do. The only concern I have with that is during baby season, which is about to start, um, sometimes the babies can get knocked out. And unless you're there monitoring it or you develop a pup catcher, you know, you can put that baby at risk of saying if you have small children out there, you know, they might want to go handle that bat, but maybe they don't tell you that they touched a bat. Or maybe your dog would get to it. And that, you know, it has a human-wildlife conflict right there. Uh, I mean, there's great people that do it. They monitor their boxes. Sometimes they report them into state what they've seen. It's great, but you just got to be a little bit wary. It's not like putting up a birdhouse. Um, and I think at the beginning of the show, you mentioned that you've begun working with a mice. Is that correct? Yes. All right. Tell us a little bit about that. So uh, I'm going to be trapping for old field mice coming soon. Uh, they use sandy burrows, and they're uh, very small uh, grouping throughout the state and just kind of figure out where they still occur. Uh, their subspecies are the, you know, the beach mice that they have down in Florida. So they are a species of concern. Another one that I'm going to be working with this summer is the meadow jumping mouse. Uh, they are one of our only true hibernators we have in the state. Um, so we only have to, we have to survey for them during the summer which is kind of hard because you have fire ants. So if you trap any animal, you have to be very uh, aware if there's fire ants nearby because the fire ants will probably get to that critter before you can. Mm -hmm. So it's a little tricky. Uh, We've only had two records in the state, so I'm hoping to find some this summer. That would be very exciting. Just curious, the beach mouse. So uh, obviously we'd find those down along the Gulf Coast? No, so uh, we don't have any on our beaches. Our beaches are all artificial. Uh, but the old field mice subspecies in like Florida and stuff where they have the natural Korean sand dunes, which are all now manipulated, um, they'll occur there. Hmm. Uh, Florida is one of my favorite, but my brother lives in Pensacola. So uh, maybe next time I go down there, I'll keep an eye out for, uh, for the beach mice. Uh, all right. So we've got a couple minutes left. If you would maybe just describe uh, again, sort of the general idea first with those old field mice, how big they are, color, that sort of thing. They are very small. So, um, they're in the Paramiscus genus. They're our smallest of that species. Uh, some, they kind of look like robo hamsters to me. If you've ever been to a pet store, those tiny little things that look like little grumpy old men. Uh, so they're gray on top, white on the bottom. Um, they, again, like the sandy areas and very sparsely vegetated areas, and they live in burrows. All right, and then a little bit more about the, the meadow jumping mouse. Like their name uh, suggests, they live in meadows. Um, they can compete with our meadow our, our meadow voles up north. We have pine voles down here, so I'm looking to see if pine voles have that same interaction with them. Um, and you know, they eat grain, 
so grass grain, et cetera. Um, as we wrap up here, you mentioned that, uh, especially with the spotted skunks, if someone is out and about and sees one, that you'd like to know about that. Uh, would that be the same if someone sees a, a mouse that uh, that you're studying? Sure. Uh, if you're lucky enough to capture one, sure, absolutely. Uh, they are both tracked species by the state. So anything reported to me is also shared with our natural heritage program. And how would someone get in touch, the best way to get in touch with you? Email is the best. Uh, is there a way we can prov- – it's really hard to say on the email. Okay. So if anyone sees either the, the spotted skunk or some of these uh, the mice that you talk about, send it to animals at mpbonline.org, and we'll make sure you get it as well. And you might maybe will be our future reference for us for identifying some of the things that people might be taking pictures of. So Sounds great. All right. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show is produced each week by Java Chapman, and our call screener is Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Caitlin Cross, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned, because up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. Mm-hmm.